Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The 80s Rewind Show Podcast. It's time, it's time to bring you yet another amazing episode. And now, welcome your host. The Face for Radio Burgess. Enjoy the show. Hello, hello. It's the Rewind Show with me, Rob, the Face for Radio Burgess. Welcome along to today's podcast. I hope you're doing extremely well. I do. I genuinely do. I hope you're doing extremely, extremely well. I've got a great episode lined up for you today. But before we get on to that, uh, I've got to say thank you to Chris Cowden, uh, who emailed in and said he really, really enjoys the show and he loves the guests that we bring on and to keep up the good work. So for you, uh, Chris, I definitely will. Now, like Chris, if you want to get me, you can get me at the 80s Rewind Show at gmail.com. Now, as I love pressing buttons, I'll do it again. The 80s Rewind Show at gmail.com. So like Chris, if you want to contact me, you can get me through that email address. Um, don't forget, if you get a chance, go on to the uh, 80s Rewind Show website. I'm going to press another button now. Check out the website, www.the80spod.com. You know what? I paid some money for that. I'm going to do it again in a minute. Uh, anyway, yeah. So if you pop onto the website, I've got some new bits on there for you. And I've got a playlist of all the guests that come on the show. So we've had Ivan from Men Without Hats. So the safety dance is on there. Kevin Patterson from Fiction Factory. So it feels like heaven's on there. And so on and so forth. And then we're going to build the playlist as the guests come on. And I was playing it the other day. It's a really interesting playlist. <laughs> I've had some great guests and the playlist is just crazy. I absolutely love it. Also, I've got some tracks exclusive to the website in there as well. Uh, and you can get that. Check out the website, www.the80spod.com. Also, I've got to say a massive thank you uh, to the people over at Simply 80s, uh, the website which voted us number one, the number one podcast to listen to um, about the 80s. I was absolutely chuffed. Um, I was saying uh, the other day to people, I don't win anything, me. I'm terrible. All ever won at school was nosebleeds. <laughs> you know when they used to do football and they'd pick the team? they go, yeah, like you, you. And I was always the last one. You know what I mean? It was just me or the jumpers on the floor. I was that bad. So to win something like that for something I've created is absolutely amazing. So thank you so much uh, for everybody at Simply 80s. So I think it's www.simply80s.com, the website, if you want to read the review they wrote. It's absolutely fantastic. Talking of reviews, if you get a chance, pop yourself on Apple Podcasts and if you can leave us a little review and some stars and the same thing with, you know, Google or whatever it is. If you can find it and uh, give us a little rating, that would be marvellous and I will owe you a cup of tea. I love tea. I don't drink enough of it. The 80s Rewind Show Podcast. Anyway, today's show, I've got a fantastic guest for you. Francis Dunnery, uh, who played in It Bites, who had the hit Calling All the Heroes. That was the big one that we know him for. Uh, and the uh, Big Lad in the Wimble album. It's lovely when you talk to artists and they're really, really enthusiastic, just generally about music, whether they're playing it, writing it, listening to it, or talking about it. Francis was no different. A fantastic guest, lovely guy. Sorry, Jane, I know you're going to tell me off. Uh, we had a great, great chat about um, It Bites, his early life playing in bands and gigging around. Uh, and what he's doing nowadays as well. He's a really interesting guy. We had a lovely chat. I laughed a lot. He's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did talking to Francis because uh, it was a great interview for me. Uh, anyway, let's check it out. So let's go right back to the beginning. What was the music you first grew up with or what was your first influences? I mean, it has to be my brother, my brother Baz. He was, uh, I mean, he's absolutely brilliant guitar player and everybody, 
in the town kind of idolized Baz. He was like the town, you know, he was like that guy in the town that everybody wanted to hang out with. And he was a brilliant guitar player. And um, so there was always guitars in my house. And I remember Hofner guitars because he collected them. Mm. I've got my very first guitar hanging on the wall in there, which is a Hofner guitar that was his guitar. And he's, I mean, he's dead now, but um, right. it was, uh, you know, that. and I remember a, a, a red leather Hofner and I remember he bought his Rickenbacker, which I've got right here in front of me here. He's got uh, this beautiful like 1960s Rickenbacker, but it was him and it was his records, Mahvishnu Orchestra, Soft Machine, and it was his thing, you know, yes, you know, Chick Corea, like all them names were, you know, I remember them as like four years old, like they were in my house from four years old, you know. Wow. And so he, I take it you played those a lot and, and you got into it that way. And were your parents into music? Were they big musicians as well? Well, I think my, my granddad, my great granddad was in Jimmy Shan's band. Right. Um, so he did that. I don't know much about Jimmy Shan or anything like that, but they played, my dad would play piano when he was drunk. Right. No, and he used to play on the black keys only, so he was always in tune. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd be like, <laughs> you know, do all that stuff. Oh, I love that. My mum would sing Jerusalem when she was pissed up as well, like, Jerusalem. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it was a madhouse. <laughs> That's crazy. So your brother's playing all these records for you and you, you, you're getting influence for them. What was the first sort of instrument you turned to? Was it guitar? Was it piano? Was it? Oh, drums. It was drums. Drums. See, uh, yeah, I used to, we had this like leather couch and it used to, and it was like a tight pulled leather couch. And when you hit, when you hit it, it had the best kick drum sound and snare drum sound, but where where you hit it, it was like a, it sounded like the guy from Sweet, like that type of sound. Wow. Yeah. I used to play, I I used to play bang on the drums all the time, like all day long. I must have drove them absolutely nuts, (laughs) but um, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. That was the thing. And then when I was about 11, I got a job actually working in a, club down uh, down on the beach called the Tarnside Club, which was, um, and, and Peter, Peter Lockhart, he played organ, he was the same age as me, and I played drums, so we'd do things like, uh, all my love, all my kissing, you don't know what you, and i go, you know, it was great, absolutely exciting, fantastic. So were you gigging at a young age? Were you actually out performing and making money? I was a narcissist before it was fashionable, yes, I was out there doing it. <laughs> Fantastic! Getting paid like like having people, you know. That I've been being I've been applauded since I was ten years old. No, before I was applauded since I was Jesus in the school play twice. So I'm <laughs> I'm a I'm an old ham. I'm an old narcissist, and that's what I've been doing. So if I still need applause now, somebody should you know. Beat me with bamboo sticks. It's enough already. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I mean, were you taking it seriously at that young age, or was it sort of like you were seen as a novelty act, and people you were just like, I know what we are, and it's fine. You know, was it? I don't know. I don't really know, Robbie. I was just, you know, I was just, I was just excited doing it. It was like, uh... then I started to lay the guitar down on my lap and play "Smoke on the Water" on my lap. Yeah, nice. I'd do things like that, or like whatever it was. You know, it was, kind of, you know, it was just like a gradual thing. But um. Yeah, I don't. I was, t- I was serious about. I mean, I thought. I don't know. I actually don't know. That's a good question. Was I taken seriously? I mean, I don't think you can take any anybody serious. I wasn't that good, to be honest. You know, it wasn't <laughs> like I was some like child prodigy or something. Right. You know, you get them kids who like are just they're unbelievable, and or like them young kids who play piano, and you see them doing classical. Co- I wasn't like that. I was just like some. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You just enjoying just, yourself. Just enjoying yourself. And going I was enjoying forward. myself. That's exactly right. Yeah. It never right. got any better than that, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Playing smoke on the water on my knee. I mean, I was so excited doing it, you know. And um, 
it was, you know, it never, it didn't get any better than that. So I was genuinely, you know, enjoying myself. I really was actually big time. That's really great. That's really, and was there a big scene for you to play in, or was it kind of like the same workingmen's clubs on a Friday and a Saturday and things like that? Yeah, so uh, that, that was the whole scene back then. Working men's clubs—you couldn't get any concerts doing your own stuff. That was for the—that was for the big serious people down south. You know, like there's these clubs where you go where they play their own stuff. Like you can't do that. We had to play like, um, you know, all just all the cover numbers, really. You know, <laughs> isn't she lovely? Nice. I think I attempted. I think one night we did the Catholic club in uh, Egremont, and I sang Wuthering Heights. <laughs> and I think that was. I think that was the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> That's yeah. brilliant. So, was it just you and your friend that was a duo at the time? When did you sort of get into your first band? Um, well, Dick Nolan um, and Bob Dalton. They were the two first guys I ever started to play with. Bob, Bob on drums and Dick on bass, and uh, we'd go and do. Um, Jethro Tull songs in Dick's parlor. We'd listen because we were in like we, we were into some pretty serious music back then. We were into like UK and like you know and Alan Oldsworth, like soft machine, like you know, like we had this Frank Zappa, Sheikah Booty. You know, these are albums yeah. that were all around, and we just absolutely loved it. I mean, I had my seventies disco pop music and all that, which I loved. You know, all the seventies stuff. I loved all that. All the you make me feel like dancing. I'm gonna dance the night away. No. All that stuff was just, you know, I, it makes me cry now when I play it. I, like, it makes me, I get so emotional, like, listening to that stuff. But, um, you know, so it was Bob and Dick, really. John John lived about three miles away. So he was in Whitehaven. He was in, like, you know, we thought that was, like, that was, you know, Agreement was, like, a smaller kind of town than Whitehaven. Whitehaven was more serious. It was, like, the Whitehaven people, you know, it was like that. <laughs> I, I, and, of course, I, I met Bob Dalton on my first day at Catholic school. Right. You know, we both set on fire as soon as we walked in. It's just <laughs> magic, was it? <laughs> um, so was that the band Waving at Trains, or was that a little bit later that you joined that band? That's later. That's when I started to play out in um, in clubs. That was, uh, I'm, I'm, the, what I'm telling you about is right about when we were like 11 and 12. But right. When I did Waving at Trains, I was like 16. Okay, so you you were playing all the way up to Waving at Trains. You, you were playing all the time. Yeah, trying to get gigs in play. I mean, we were just crap. To be honest, it was like we were terrible, but we just, you know, we were trying real hard. Yeah. You know, we were trying hard, you know. My mum bought me a guitar for like £375 right. and put herself in like eternal debt on the never-never, you know, on the on the thing. You know, I'll never forget that. Yeah. Um, I've still got that guitar. Oh, fantastic. In fact, the guy, it supposedly burnt down in a shop when I put it in for repair. All right. And then I was at this festival and some guy walked up to me and went, and this is like 20 years later, and some guy, walked, I thought I'd lost the guitar. And a guy walked up and he went, hey, you recognize this? And I went, what? And he gave, just gave me it. And, and I haven't seen him since. I've been trying to contact him on Facebook. I, Who's the guy who gave me the guitar? And I can't find him. <laughs> just vanished, does he? Because I, I, I want to, like, do something for him, like send him on holiday to, like, you know, Singapore or something. I <laughs> oh, it was me. <laughs> I, was just so t- I was so taken aback. I just didn't really know what to do, you know. That's amazing. That's amazing. So it sounds like your early influences were quite prog rock as well. It was like, you know, Genesis in there as well and that sort of stuff. Was it English prog that you were interested in? I remember Nursery Crime. So that was the, that was 1971. That's when Genesis first happened for me. I remember uh, I was talking to Steve Hackett about this and I said, like, you've been in my house since 1971. You know, you've been that thing that he does. You know, it's because um, I get very emotional with Steve as well because, I, you know, he's such a, a great, I love old, I love old Steve. He's an amazing guy. And, um, mm. 
But it's the work he's done. He's like ingrained in my veins, you know. But Genesis were huge for me. Yeah. I, I mean, it was huge. I mean, that was the first one that was like my thing because my brother like, yes. And he liked all the other stuff. But Genesis, that was my thing. Like, you know, it was like, I remember when Genesis Live came out. It was 1973. And um, yeah, man, that was just like hearing the musical box that I'd been listening to on Nursery Crime. Because there was no internet, obviously, back then. So you And the Genesis weren't in the papers very much. Or the, you couldn't really see them. Yeah. So we'd order this, um, their records from this shop, a clothes shop called Tatters. And they used to buy vinyl albums as well. And, we, and then we'd wait like seven weeks. And then, we'd, <laughs> and then nurse, you know, it's it's arrived. Foxtrot's here. You know, it was like <laughs> amazing. They were, I mean, I mean, Peter Gabriel in that period was on fire, wasn't he? There was no one like him. He was just groundbreaking. Just, you know. Something else. I mean, it was just, I don't know, man. It was just, I couldn't understand how the world weren't going freaking out about it. But I mean, they are now, but like back then, you know, it was just like, I mean, listen to them, you know, can you tell me where my country, all them songs and the ideas and the musical chords and the and the melodies and the time, sing, you know, it was just, it was like, man, it was just unbelievable. I loved it. I mean, you know? I just found Peter Gabriel then to be very brave as well, to walk out in a lady's dress. I know Bowie did it in, a little bit before, but... In Dublin? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a box in a boxing arena in Dublin, Ireland. <laughs> I mean, that takes some stones from anybody, doesn't it? It's amazing. Upper-class English kids walking out into a boxing ring in Dublin in a red dress and a... Fo- Come on. That's, his, <laughs> that's some bull. That's because he's an Aquarian, you see. He likes to put his two fingers up. He likes to be different. That's the Aquarians <laughs> like that. I, um, I managed to see Steve Hackett um, a few years ago um, doing early Genesis stuff and he was doing um, nursery crimes and stuff like that. And he was, uh, what for a person that listens to Genesis from the 70s, I didn't realise how immersive they are. They were live. So when I saw it and he had Nick Beggs on bass, it was amazing. And um, just the atmosphere, it was, it, was incre- it was crazy. It was just like you were literally drawn into this show. It was absolutely amazing. And the I, I first don't... time I saw that Genesis, well, Steve asked me to sing on his album, actually. I sang on Genesis Revisited 2. I sang their song, Dancing with the Moonlit Night. So I was really honoured for that. I mean, that was just like, that's, wow, yeah. you know, that's one of my biggest achievements in my life for me. You know, that's like, that's like huge for me that. But um, I went to see them live in them. Um, I got up and sang with them. He asked me to go down and sing live. Um, I sang Supper's Ready and I sang Dancing with the Moonlit Night. It was in New Jersey when he came, he was on tour over here. Yeah. But dude, I was standing at the side of the stage because I'd never seen some of that Genesis stuff ever played live before. I was just absolutely in paradise. It was just, every, you know, it was playing all these. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing that. It was just like amazing. It was absolutely amazing. I loved it. it I mean, killer. It, it's no different for anyone like, you know, me doing a podcast about yourself, listen to it bites and stuff. They have the same experience. It takes them back, gets them emotional. Yeah. So it's amazing that you can do that thing as well. It's great. Well, I, I, that's another thing I spoke to Steve about. I said, you don't understand. I said, dude, you don't understand. Like, it's like, you know, you just don't get it. You're just like sitting there playing. You don't get what that did to me. <clears throat> and so that's one of the reasons I do the, I do the yearly, um, you know, celebration of it bites music in England. I do it for that reason. So we all just come celebrate and, and, you know, because I know from emails and from, you know, over the last 20, 30 years, the people have stepped, said to me and, you know, I know how important it is to them. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Um, I, I sometimes feel bad for them because I'm not really, um, you know, one of them, 
you know, quite moody types like David Sylvian or something. I'm a bit of a psychopath. So, you know, it's, but like when they meet me, they go like, oh, I didn't know you were like that. You know, it's kind of like, well, it makes for a great show. So, Well, it's fun. You know, we, have, we definitely have fun. That's great. So uh, we'll jump forward a bit to Waving at Trains. Uh, were you starting to songwrite at this point or were you still just doing covers and playing what was on the radio? Or? Well, I think I, mean, I think I was starting to think about it. But Don Mackay, who was the lead singer, he was a great songwriter. He had some great songs. Uh, he really did, man. I mean, I, I mean, I, I should cover some of them songs. He had a, he had a, such a great repertoire. And my brother played with him first, but then, you know, my brother was always flitting in and out of bands for whatever reason. I think he... I think he just got bored or something. I don't know. But Don had some great songs. And so, you know, I first began to, began to took notice of what a songwriter was. And he was into like Elvis Costello or George Jackson. It was on about, you know, like, like he liked that when they first started to come out and, um, any, any trouble and like, you know, the, you know, a bunch of guys like that. He liked that whole thing. Yeah. And, um, so I first started to understand, you know, like, you know, he was writing about real things as opposed to Genesis who was singing about like Harold the Battle and all this stuff. <laughs> like This was like real stuff. And it was like, ah, oh, right. But I was still wasn't really writing songs at that point. I'd written a couple at school, even when I was 11. Right. Uh, it was actually one of my last albums, which I redid a song called Freeway. Loves Freeway. Nice. And I kind of, I, I produced the, 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 uh, the adult me produced my child me. Was it weird when you look back? Did you remember the time when you were actually looking for the lyrics? Did, was it like like you say about the music? Was it just flooding back to you, what you were doing, how you felt and that sort of stuff? Was it like another doorway? No, I, I think I was more interested in music back then because we were, you know, we, you know, I was into bands, you know, we were into like bands like Focus, Soft Machine, Mahvishnu Orchestra, mm. Chick Corea, mm. Weather Report. You know, I mean, I was only a kid. I was like 11 or 12 at this, you know, like when that first started to soak in. So, you know, I remember first hearing Alan Holdsworth on profile, uh, Hazard Profile uh, on Soft Machine on an album called Bundles. And I was just like, dude, you must, you know, it was like, you know, it was like, you know what's going on? <laughs> so we were, and I was dreadfully excited about it all. And I remember, you know, it was like, oh man, you know, like if, 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 even when we played Ingve Malmsteen for the first time, he was only a kid, like 16 or something. We were about the same age. And me and Dick Nolan in his parlor, we put it on. It was a thing called Rising Force, I think he had. Right. And, um, and we went, dude, who's this guy? You know, we were, <laughs> it, 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 you know, we, we were getting blown away by, by new music that we'd, you know, discovered. But, uh, but it was more, the music was more, um, important to me at that point than the, than the lyrics at that point. It's a bit like my dad used to make me cassettes all the time because um, we were like a single parent family. And he, he, when he re took me away, he oh, is an album for you to listen to this week. It was like a project for him. <laughs> and really? uh, I remember when I was 11, he gave me um, Steely Dan's greatest hits and it blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, even to this day, they're one of the greatest bands. Uh, anyone listening to the podcast, if you don't know who they are, find them. You'll love them. They're amazing. And, they're uh, a big part of my life as well. I, I mean, we had Can't, uh, Can't Buy Thrill and we had you know, Asia and... Uh, the, you know, the Royal Scam. My sister was massive. And all them songs, you know, there's fire in the heart and Brilliant. nothing left to burn. It's huge for me, that. So, you know, it's funny. I went to see them live um, about 10 years ago. Um, and they're the first band I've ever seen that had a stage invasion where someone run across the stage. <laughs> now, of all the bands. Steely Dan? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> they were playing. The musicals just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> they all just looked at each other like, "What's going on?" And this guy was running around. I think they were doing dirty work or something as well. It wasn't even one of the songs you could run around I'm to. A fool to do your dirty work no more. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, it was. It was a song like that or something. And he was running across the stage, and then the security came out, and just jumped on him. It was amazing. And I've seen ACDC and all these bands. It never happened there. Just Steely Dan, but. <laughs> Yeah, steely down. It bites. How did you form it bites originally? It was just around the clubs. We started doing cover numbers. Um, me, Bob and Dick and them. We, we knew John. John was an incredibly talented kid. He was only like 16 or something or 17 down in Whitehaven in, in, uh, in this like rough housing estate called Meyer House. And, um, and he, but he was brilliant. Old John. He was absolutely brilliant. He was one of them. You could play him anything and he just played it right back for you, John. He's, he's, he's incredibly talented, you know? Yeah. And, um, and we, we, so we got together and we started doing, I think we started doing like level 42 numbers. Right. Um, I, this is when a level 42 just come out. So it was round about that time, maybe a year before that. Or, but I remember that, you know, um, you know, we were doing some pretty cool covers, you know, like, uh, but we started to get gigs maybe one night a week or something or something, you know, and we had a bit of a reputation because we were absolutely mental. We used to get drunk <laughs> and all that and we were, you know, and I'm six foot four, so like I was like diving around the stage, and like it was, you know, it was we were just steaming drunk. Like sometimes <laughs> you were that drunk you couldn't even sing. But we got eventually got banned from all the clubs in uh, in Cumbria for pissing in pint glasses and all that and smashing things up. <laughs> you know, we were, de- you know, we were definitely, um, you know, we weren't we weren't goody two shoes bands. Sometimes I watch bands, you know, uh, uh, you know, especially the metal bands because the metal bands are the nicest people in the world. I don't know whether you know that. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, heavy yeah. metal fans and the bands—they are literally the nicest people you'll ever meet in your entire life. Like they're, and the, and I always think that all of them are dominated by their parents, all the fans, and they go out to these metal shows and they go, Wah! and they do that whole thing. But then they just go back to the bank where they work in the bank the next day and they're kind of, oh hello, you know how are you doing? <laughs> it's I and. But if you know, if dangerous people are people like Sean Ryder and people like that. That you know, it's that lot. Yeah, you know, the people who are not grandstanding on being crazy or anything. That's the lot. And so it bites were a bit like that. We were trying to like not really make a scene of being weird or crazy or or whacked out or drunks or anything like that. But that's indeed what we were. You know, we were nuts. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Seriously, we were absolutely crazy, dude. <laughs> and where did you get the name from? Where does it bites actually come from? Was it just something you just picked out of the air, or was it? It was the drummer from my uh, my brother's old band. We didn't have a name at that point, and um, well, I think we had one called School Days because of uh, because of the Stanley Clark track. Right. Stanley Clark had a track called School Days, and so we we were called that for a while. And then and then uh, the drummer from my Frank Hall from my brother's old band. He, said, he had this picture and said it bites, and there was like a there was a picture of like a monster thing on it, and we went, yeah, let's call ourselves It Bites. You know, that's original. <laughs> You know, bit, so that was it. Well, Black Sabbath did the same, isn't it? <laughs> and Ozzy Osbourne was already taken, so we couldn't do that. That was the best name, and, you know. <laughs> so you can't get a better name than that for a rock star, Ozzy Osbourne. That's great, isn't it? So <laughs> English. You need if you've not read his autobiography, you need to read it. It's fantastic. It's it's brilliant. Well, I know Ozzy really well. I mean, Ozzy used to oh, sleep do? on my couch. No way. Yeah, my, my brother played guitar for Ozzy when I was a kid after he wow. left Sabbath. Wow, amazing. Ozzy put me on the school bus once. I told my friends, Ozzy Osbourne's at my house. And I was thinking I was 11, I think. And they're like, yeah, right. What are you talking? <laughs> so my mum had dragged him out of bed and held him at the front door. So when the bus, the school bus drove past our house, there's Ozzy waving us all off the school. And my, my friends were like, what the fuck? What's going on? You know? No, I know Ozzy well, yeah. Oh, man. I, well, 
from a from a distance, his book was amazing. So funny. You can't believe he's still around. It's, it's just crazy, man. Absolutely brilliant. So, yeah. were you um was you signed to a label at this point? Um, no, no, you wasn't. Oh and you moved oh, down no, to no. London. Is that right? And for a little while, and that's where it started. To happen I went for by you. myself first. I was always that kind of um, you know, I'm that guy in Vietnam who's at the front. Right, <laughs> you know what I mean. I'm, 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 I'm a dangerous guy. I'm always, you know, I'm always edging towards danger. I'll put myself on the. I've always done it, and because it's exciting to me, and it makes me, I don't know. I think it makes me creative. But I've always jumped off cliffs, and um, and I've probably fifty percent of the time I've suffered great, uh, serious, you know, like beatings, you know, <laughs> from life. <laughs> but the ones that take off when you get the wings, if you jump off the cliff and you got some wings, you're like, oh, you know, it's. That's what's really defined my life, the the ability to not worry about what's going to happen to me or the faith in that I'm going to be all right. And so I got on I got uh, on the M6. I was picked up by the Pogues. No way. I swear to God, this is how I met Shane and all them guys. And they were supporting Elvis Costello. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I don't know whether this is the first time I ever went. This is definitely one time I went. I don't, it right. might have been the first time. I'm not sure. I'll have to look at the dates and see when that is. But um, they took me to Lancaster University, and uh, and El- they were supporting Elvis Costello. And Elvis Costello's girlfriend was the bass player. I think her name is Kate or something. Is her name Kate or something? But she took like a weird shine to me when she was drunk, and so she was like, and 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 um, and so there was a whole thing with that, which I, you know, I was. It, you know, it, it was a bit weird. And so they drove me down to London and dropped me off at Euston Station. I think mm. they were in Camden, I think. Uh, Kentish Town, maybe. was I can't remember. But I, I, went, I was at Euston Station and I kind of stayed there quite a few nights. And right. somebody told me about squats. And then um, and I broke into a house. I'll cut the story short for you. I eventually broke into the house, put my own key on, and that was me then establishing a squat in uh, in Peckham. <laughs> nice. so you're in the old council building. And then I called up the guys, and then about six months later, they come down. I was doing. I was in an R and B band then. That's why I like R and B music. It sounds like um, when you describe it, sounds like a glamorous sort of London story. But if you live in a squat, was it was it fun? Did you enjoy those times? Oh, it was amazing. It was good. Amazing. You know, the, the concept of poverty is all in your head. I mean, if you go back in the medieval times and you take a child from the medieval times back then, they would you would go to jail for child abuse now. Yeah, true. Yeah. It's like we're just getting softer and softer. We're getting the further away we get from nature. You know, yeah. I see it like like in the middle of winter, I see that there's deer and turkeys and everything wandering around here. And um, you know, you see them in the middle of winter. Nature has it so they, they almost die. Yeah. And, but they always make it, you know, they get, they finally get through, you know, the, uh, they say when you say you've had enough, you, you're only using 40%. 
Right. You know, you've got another 60% left to go when you say, I can't take any more, but you actually can do another 60% and um, <laughs> grow poor or anything like that. I didn't even know. Yeah. I, we, we were poor. You know, poor was a, you know, poor was a headspace. You know, I, I wasn't poor. I wasn't scumming it down in Peckham. You know, I had, I had a couch and all that. I got a, like a second-hand couch <laughs> and I was on the door and, Amazing. you know, all that stuff. I used to steal milk and all that, <laughs> doorsteps. We did that a bit. I remember those days. Go around, yeah. go around pubs at, at night. This is when it bites came down and would go and get the ashtrays and take the tobacco out because we had no cigarettes. <laughs> That's awesome. But it was fun. You know, it was, it was like, it was fun. I love all that. It's <laughs> great. So you, you, you went down to London and then it bites came down. Um, yeah. Were you then gigging around the area? Was you shopping for record? No, there was no gigs at all. We were just doing demos 24 hours a day. We, and right. we didn't, we were just recording onto a cassette player as well, live. So like John had a, John had a little drum box, one of them like a silver thing, you know, them silver silver drum boxes. What do they call them? I can't remember what they call them. But then, but we got, um, so we'd record live to a cassette and send our tapes off and we got nothing back. And it was Paul Morley who sent us a tape, uh, a letter one time and said, listen, you've got, you can't, he said, I'm just trying to be nice to you guys. He said, you're never going to get anybody pick up on these. He said, you've got to do professional demo tapes because nobody's, nobody's gonna, you know, and we'd lived on hope for like a year. Yeah. To that point, we're like 19 at this point, I think 18 or 19. And we'd been living on hope. Um, and then when he told us that, when we got that letter, we were devastated. Right. Cause we thought, oh man, you know, because we didn't, we, we, we actually thought we were going to change the music industry. <laughs> you know, we had, we're going to do 27 minute long songs and every, the radio's got to stop playing signals. And we're going to, you know, <laughs> we were like that. And then so naive isn't even in it, man. Jesus Christ, you know. We'd watch interviews about bands like from art colleges and all these people. And we were like, what are they talking about? Yeah. We didn't know what socialism was or anything. We didn't even know. But that wasn't part of our... We just knew that Alan Allsworth could play faster than anybody we knew. You know, that's <laughs> all we knew. You know, we were pretty sad at that point. And so I said, I'm going into Warner Brothers the next day. I'm just going to go in. Mm. And so we got up and I went into Warner Brothers with my demo tape and I'm kind of arguing with the guards trying to get past, you know, the security guards. And I'm like, I just want to give somebody my, you have to make an appointment. I can't get, and then this guy walked out and he said, what's going on? I said, I want somebody to listen to my tape here. I said, um, and he said, he gave me his card. He said, give me the tape, call me tomorrow. And uh, I'll tell you if I like it. And he, and he absolutely loved it. It was a guy called Martin Mayhead and that was it. We're nice. off, and then nice. he got interviews with Virgin Records. They come down to see us, like you know, all these. There's about three or four labels wanted to sign us. We were pretty good, you know, pretty good band. Yeah. Uh, did you sign um, to Virgin in the end? Was it Virgin you signed to? Signed to Virgin, yeah. We loved them. Yeah, we were part of that really exciting new Virgin. You know, there was like Simple Minds. It was like Japan, Captain Beefheart. You know, there was like all these amazing um, artists. The Blue Nile. You know, we, like yeah. it was all that lot. You know, we were part, kind of part of that. You're among friends, yeah. <laughs> and then you started working on the the Big Lad in the Wimmer album. Is that right? Is that the first album you released for Virgin? Yeah, yeah. I don't think, I, I think the A&R guys didn't think we could play the demos live. They said, you won't be able to play it live. And we were like 50 times better live than we were on the tapes. Yeah. So when they came down to us, it was a no-brainer for them. They just signed it. And then so we started working on it right away. We got a producer, Alan Shacklock. Yeah. And was it a good album to make? Was it fun? Was it? Were you all firing on cylinders? Was it? Incredibly exciting. Wouldn't like Rack Studios with Mickey Most. And I used to play, what to call that band Mickey Most's son was in? Uh, the, I don't know, they had a lot of, a lot of hit single, singles. But we used to play table tennis. Um, they had a table tennis table in there. And I could never beat him, the bastard. 
you know, because I can usually beat people. I can usually, you know, I'm good at table tennis, but I could never beat him. Johnny hates jazz. Oh, right, yeah. That's who it was, yeah. So, and, um, man, it was a sim- simply Redwood in there recording their first album as well. You know, so it was just, it was just an exciting time. You know, it was just, it was just amazing. You know, like, and when you get a record deal back then, um, you know, you'd, you'd got a ticket to the Golden Castle at that point, you know, like, you know, you were in, like, it's like, you know, if you're, you said, so yeah, we've got a deal with Virgin. It like, it was a big deal, you know. Yeah. You know, I was so we were just, you know, we were, we were just, man, I don't think we were that conscious of what was happening. We were just in this glow of life had just shown up for us. It was just wonderful. That's brilliant. Yeah. And uh, can we talk about um, Call of All the Heroes? When did that song come around and when did you write it and what was the inspiration? And I don't know. I just, I think that um, we were just, I mean, it was, the music was, again, was more important than, we would, we would like do the music first and then put some lyrics to it at the end. You know, it wasn't like I'd, so I've got something to say. Mm. You know, you get bands who go like, I've got something to say about something. Um, you know, Billy Bragg or something. I'm going to talk about, you know, the Russian struggles and the black... We didn't doing that. We just wanted to like do some like, you know, some weird timing shit and some stuff like Mahavishnu Orchestra. And then, yeah, put some, song, put some words on it. So we just put some words on it. So I'd just get the thing go, calling all the heroes. What was it about? Cowboys or something? I don't know what it was about. I don't, we didn't <laughs> care what it was about. We were trying to like make a statement. <laughs> and so that's why when you went in with like New Music Express or Sounds or Melody Maker, they're like, well, the lyrics are like, we don't give a shit about what the We care about that. We just, have you heard the beat? <laughs> How about the turnaround? We're going, you know, it's going, we've got the, the, the like, and so it goes from a swing. And it goes That's all we care about. <laughs> shit about what it meant. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. I was it's interesting. I was I was sort of looking up uh, the song and bits and bobs like that. And then people say it's one of those songs that like the the sound on it, it literally smashes you in the face when it starts. And I was like, that's, that's, it does do that. That's been, but when you listen to the whole album, it literally matches the rest of the album. The whole album just smashes you right in the face. It's fantastic. It's got such a great sound. Such a great no sound. No idea. No idea. I just, you know, we, we would, uh, you know, it's hard to see when you do it. It's hard to see it like that. You know, you just, like other people, you know, uh, go crazy about some of our albums and, you know, and, but it's, you know, when you do it, it's like a difficult thing to, it's like when I talk to Steve Hackett, it's like, Dude, don't you understand? Like, you know, that, you know, I'm going to, I feel like Neil from the young ones, you know, when, when he does that, uh, you, know, you know, guys, guys, don't you understand? You know, we sow the seed. Nature grows the seed and then we eat the seed. <laughs> That's my favorite program of all it's time. It's like man. that. That's how I am talking to Steve. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, all in Red was released as well. Um, but did that do very well, All in Red, the, the single? Because that's a fantastic Not really. Song. Not really. We were talking to um, Mike Reed, I think it was. He was in the studio once. Yeah. And he said that, um, you know, he understood why we released All in Red because it was more like rock. See, when you get to – see, we didn't have anybody with an idea of how to market us or, or, or nobody who could talk to us to make it – to make sense, if 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 the mean right now could have managed it bites back then, mm. we would have went through the roof because I would have known how to tell them young guys there how to do a three minute single. Yeah, you know, like because we were very talented at doing it. It isn't like our ideas are unmelodic or anything like that. It's just that we didn't want to do it. 
That's fair enough. We wanted to do like 20 minute long songs. And so, you know, it was, we weren't interested in having hit singles, but we didn't realize if you don't have hit singles, then you're not going to be able to tour. You're not going to be able to do this. or you're not going to be, nobody told us that we were just. Yeah. You just doing you what know, you wanted to do. That's, yeah, that's fine. I, I would have sat me down. I went, listen, Frankie boy, listen, listen to me now. Listen, I want you to do, I want you to, I want you to go up against the music industry. I would have put that out there. I would have said, I want you to prove them all wrong. Because mm. as soon as you say that to me, I'm right, <laughs> dude. I would have known what to say to me, right? And just say, listen, we got it. We got it. We got it. It's us against them. Three minute long songs. I want three of them. You give us three of them. And then we're going to be able to take them 17 minute long songs and have everybody hear 17 minute long songs. <laughs> But our, adver- our advertising is the three-minute ones. So we just use them for advertising. So go and write something like really chirpy and like and and really catchy. And then everybody's going to say these 70-minute long songs, this is what it's all about. Like I would have said something like that. <laughs> I mean, what's nice is you can hear your prog influences in the album, though. You can hear it in the, in the first album. And I think that's lovely. Um, when I read about the fact that you like Genesis, I thought, oh, you can actually hear that you've, you've got your influences in there from the start. That's, that's, I love that. I love that. Album. Well, we just wanted to be that. See, we just wanted yeah. to be Genesis or yes, you know, the Pink Floyd, you know, like Marvish new soft, like that's all we wanted to We were just, cause yeah. when we'd get stoned and listen to those bands, we just couldn't believe what they'd done. Like we would listen to something like, you know, return to forever, the mutiny of the Titan, the jester or something like down, 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 down. And we were just sitting there like bombed out of our brains on pot, <laughs> just going, what, how can they even think that? You know, we'd say things like, Dude, how can they even think those thoughts to have those chords come after each? You know, we were doing all that. So when we, we just wanted to do that. But I mean, you, you sort of did it. You did it in a, in a pop formula, but you did do it. If people listen to the first album, they will hear prog and they will hear pop mixed together. You did succeed. You just we did. did you yes, did, we did. No, did, we definitely did. You just didn't make them long. That's the only difference. They're not. We, you know, we, we, we were, you know, I considered it by to be a huge success because we, you know, the way we went at it was just, you know, it was, yeah. it was, you know, and the type of music we were doing, it's, it's a difficult sell. I mean, I look at, I look at bands like Prefab Sprout and I think Paddy's one of the best songwriters out there. And even he couldn't really, you know, happen like Bon Jovi did or any, you know, it was, and, and or the Blue Nile. Yeah. I listen to them guys or even Japan, you know, you listen even, you know, to the, to, if you look at people like say John Bon Jovi or, or, or White Snake or like any of those bands, you know, Blue Nile, Prefab Sprout, Jellyfish, yeah, you know, there's a whole bunch of bands that are so amazing, but they didn't. It's a hard sell when you're doing that sort of music, see? It is. But I mean, what I found about the album when I first listened to it um, was how interesting it was. It wasn't just a pop album. It was really, really interesting. I just think uh, it just blew my mind a little bit. I was like, this is great. It's so, you know, like when you get an 80s album, you, you think you know what you're going to get and then you put it on and then you play like the first It Bites album. You're like, that's amazing. It's so interesting to me. Great. Yeah. No, I'm glad. I'm glad. I mean, I think there was some really um, strong tracks on there, and I think uh, yeah, definitely. There was definitely some good moments, definitely. Yeah. So you and the guys, you made three albums in total. Was that right? You did three, mm-hmm. uh, and then you you basically split up for a little bit, and then you went to LA to work on your solo stuff. Well, I think I was just, you know, I think I think, you know, when you're in a band like It Bites and you're just getting told no and it's not happening and nobody wants you, you know, it's hard to keep it together because the pressure you're under. It's kind of it's like the equivalent of having been in a relationship and living in poverty. Yeah. There's no agreement for you anymore. 
and it's like, and it just, nobody, you know, like nobody wants to deal with you. They just, you know, we, we thought we were writing great tunes and we thought we were better alive than we ever were and all this stuff. But when you get into that psychology, so it was, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like some terrible breakup or anything like that. It's just, you just, you can't take it after like eight years of negativity. Yeah. It's really difficult, you know, and it, and it, and it destroys your soul. You just think like, why does nobody like our music? And, you know, but then you, you know, when you finally get into it and you realize that it's to do with the marketing people and the business, you know, yeah, and the management making people happen and who knows who. Yeah. It's external. You know, like all internal. that, all that stuff, you know. Yeah. And did you enjoy being solo? Was it, was it a relief for you at the time or did you miss the guys and the band? Was it? No, it was a really sad time for me because on my first album, um, Welcome to the Wild Country, I was, I was heavily drinking real bad and, uh, you know, and my, my, my dad died and, oh, you know, it was a really awful time really. So I didn't enjoy it. And I, and, uh, I wouldn't say I missed the guys cause I was more excited being in Los Angeles with a new girlfriend and I was living in Beverly Hills, you know, it was like all this stuff, but I was, you know, it was, a, when I look back in hindsight, it was a sad time. Yeah. It's kind of like when people say, you know, when you're 11 years old and somebody says to you, well, you're just, you know, you're going through that stage of life right now for, you know, when you're 50 or 15, you know, you're rebelling and you don't realize it at the time. But when you look back, you think, yeah, 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 I did. <laughs> it's kind of like that. So I was like sad, um, to the core. And that's when I, I hit, you know, I, I hit bottom with my drinking and I stopped drinking. That's about 35 years ago or something. Oh, well done, and my I, friend. Well done. Kudos to you, yeah. mate. That's brilliant. And then you were doing a lot of session work and joining people, yeah. playing with people. Do you still really enjoy well, that's it? When I got sober, though, that I wasn't, oh. I wasn't when I was just an asshole when I was drinking. I was right. just, you know, it's like a sad, pathetic kind of, ugh, you know, and I look back, it's kind of, you know, I was, I was at my weakest, I think. And so the me now looking back then, I mean, I've got a bit of empathy for myself given what I was going through, but mm. it's kind of like, dude, you know, there's nothing about that time that really I look back and go, wow, that was. You know, I even messed up the solo album. I couldn't even do that right. There was some good tunes on it, some good ideas, but I just, it was just wrong, you know. Oh, okay. It's just wrong, wrong time for it, was it? Well, I mean, do you fancy re-recording them at some point and doing them again now you're in a different headspace? Is that something that's... Well, good? I did. I re-recorded uh, Return to the Wild Country. It's oh, called, did. there's one, the first one was called Welcome to the Wild Country, but that's the, that's, that's one of my favourite records I've done, the Return <laughs> to the Wild Country, because I finally did them right, how they should have been done. Fantastic. And then you toured with Robert Plant know. for a while as well. You got to work with Robert. I mean, that must have been amazing. Oh, I love Robert. Robert's my favourite. He's like of all like the megastars and all that. Robert's the, I absolutely love him. He's the funniest, most intelligent megastar I know. And a record he's collector. Genius. <laughs> love him. Absolutely love Robert. And he's got balls of steel. He always jumps off cliffs. <laughs> he does. And he always takes risks. He doesn't just go back with Zeppelin all the time and do that. And he's always done that. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's heavily misunderstood, Robert. You know, people think he's like some kind of, well, you know, they think he's Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin, but he's not. No, he's, he's like not. a really, really cool guy, Robert. He's deeply philosophical. He's a brilliant mind. And of course, you know, he's, 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 he takes risks. You know, he's always, he's always remained creative to this day. Yeah. I think as he's got older, he's got better as well. If that's not rude to say, I think he's. Yeah, I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. I think he's going to come to one of the gigs I'm doing in November. I was speaking to him, and um, I had a good, I had a good old natter with him then. And um, but now nah, I love Robert, man, Robert. I mean, and also he gave me opportunities. Like he, I lived at the top of the mountain for three years. You know, I was doing everything. Was like I, I got the the whole rock star stuff like big <laughs> time. And so I don't feel like uh, unfulfilled in any shape or form. You know, like I've lived it out. You know at that level, you know, doing 20,000 seats a night. And wow. it was just fantastic. I loved it. 
That's amazing. And then obviously you played with Steve Hackett. And then was it right? Genesis offered you a, a, a singing job at one point as well, the the band? No, they didn't offer me. I did an audition because, um, I mean, I, I knew in certain terms there's no way I can do it because I can't do Phil Collins. Right. I can do Peter Gabriel better than him. <laughs> you know, that, I can. I can do it on them early Genesis stuff. But, you know, if you listen to Steve Hackett's Genesis Revisited 2 and the way I sang Dancing with the Moonlit Night, Genesis is about the phrasing. Right. Like the way you phrase the tunes, like, and you can't upset the phrasing because if you do, it's like playing, like, if you've got smoke on the water that goes, like, I keep, I keep talking about smoke on the water, it goes, <laughs> if you get it and go, it's not that. And so when you change yeah. the Genesis phrasing of the lyrics, it's not the same. You can't do like the blues thing with Genesis, it's composition. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and so I, I I can't stand people singing Genesis songs when they don't honour the 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 phrasing of them because it just to me it's just it's kind of like inflicting yourself on like a diamond yeah. that you shouldn't be doing that to me. That's, that's fair enough. Sometimes you, you know what I mean. Yeah, meet your heroes or work with them. Yeah, and um, you've been doing house gigs as well. Is this right? You've been doing people have been booking you. They go around. You go around the house and play. I think that's amazing. That was eighteen years ago. Um, when I was a bit depressed and I was, a bit, you know, I was in the middle of a midlife crisis and I just thought, well, I, cause I didn't want to do music anymore. I was just bored. Right. And so I thought, what can I do? I thought, well, I'll go and do like a psychological program. I'll go on, cause I've been studying psychology for like 30 years. And so I'll go and talk about life and we'll do some philosophy and stuff and I'll sing some songs and it started off. You know, I got like 5,000 requests in like a week. So I just <laughs> went off around the world for 18 years and that was it. <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, like 150 shows a year for like 18 years. It was nuts. And you were literally playing in living rooms in people's houses. Is this right? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's the it's the best. Like just you know, 20, 30 people in the room, and you're just in there. as like you know, you can't show up as like some rock dude. It's like you have to show up as like their pal. Wow. You know, you just go in and just be fucking. You know, just be normal. Just sit and do your thing and stop. You know, get rid of all that nonsense, that daft ego stuff, and just man. I mean, I've made friends all around the world, New Zealand, Australia, Hawaii, Canada. I mean, Switzerland, Norway, Germany, France, Belgium, Sweden, England, Ireland, Scotland. I mean, dude, all up and down, all around America, Seattle, Washington, New York, New Miami, blah, absolutely Amazing. everywhere. And um, I mean, that's probably the, it's definitely the most successful, one of those jumping off the cliff ideas I've ever had. Yeah. It was ridiculously successful, like stupid. Like, like if I, if it was in the charts, I'd be number one for like seventy weeks. <laughs> if it was one of them things, it was like it was unbelievable. And um, oh man, it was you know. And I still, I'm, I'm I did one uh, Monday actually. And oh, no I did one on I did one on Saturday, one on Monday. But I don't do them like I used to. All right. If you're in England, can you do my house, please? <laughs> I'll play your house. I'm going to come to England. I'm going to do three house concerts this time. Um. Fantastic. I'll probably do Thursday, Friday, Saturday because I start rehearsing on the Sunday for the blues stuff. But um, I, I'm going to because everybody's asking for them, so I'll do three and I'll see if it's if it's if I can make it. I'll I'll uh, I'll see. So, um, what you're working on now? Your blues album? Did you say it was Tombstone Dunnery? Um, and that was Tombstone Dunnery was when I first left it bites and um, I started to I moved to Los Angeles. I didn't want to be Francis Dunnery. I wanted to be a band name. And so the original one I had was the Dunnery Tombstone. That was the first thing. I don't know why. I was probably just some negative mood. I don't know what it is. But <laughs> I thought the Dunnery Tombstone. And then I thought, well, it'd be more poetic to call it the Tombstone Dunnery. Yeah. Right. So that's more poetic, right? Yeah, so I thought that. Up. 
And then the band, the guys in the band, we used to laugh about it because I came in one time with a great big hat on. Where's my hat? <laughs> like this. I had like a great big hat on like this and uh, and a big black a big black coat and a big pair of black boots and a black <laughs> pair of black pants. And they went, dude, Tombstone Dunnery. That's the best. <laughs> they, uh, and my manager at the time, Steve Barnett, who managed ACDC, he said, Tombstone Dunnery, that's the best blues name I've ever heard in my life. And so it was a big joke for a while. <laughs> and I used to con- I used to tell people I'm changing my name to Tombstone Dunnery, and they were like, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> which I thought was a great name. I love it, yeah. So when I come to do the uh, blues project and I'm thinking about the name for it, I went, Tombstone Dunnery, that's it. We'll, we'll go back to that. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's the best blues name in the world. I love it. And um, if people want to find out about, you know, Tombstone Dunnery and all your other stuff, where's the best place to go for that? Oh, probably on their Facebook. Just look up Tombstone Dunnery. I'm on there. We haven't really started advertising yet. We start advertising on October the 15th, but it'll be mm. on my website, francisdunnery.com. I'm sure I'll do a Tombstone Dunnery website, you know, pictures of me with a black hat. <laughs> look like the Undertaker from yeah. the wrestling, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's all theatre and everybody. Yeah. I told all the guys, you got to, it's blues, dude. We've got to honour the old blues guys. They always had a smart suit and nice... They had like weird, you know, they had like weird whacked out ties. Like, you know, they always had... Oh, I love it. It's like polka dot I love it. Wicked. It's all, it's all theatre. The whole thing is... is <laughs> I mean, the music's great, but, the, the, you know, we want to do theatre. We're definitely looking to honour the old black guys and the way, and the you know, the old, old blues players, man. I just love them. I absolutely love them. They're just full of soul. There's no... They don't think. They're just full of... Their, it's just pouring out of them. There's no thought in it. That's what I love about blues. Organic playing. Yeah, beautiful. Um, Francis, it's been lovely to talk to you today, mate. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time. It's been incredible. Great, Robbie. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.